Hello and welcome to On Mike with me, Jordan Rich. Addiction is sadly a growing problem for this culture and others, with alcoholism still topping the list as the leading substance abused by far. There have been so many representations of alcoholism on film, from The Lost Weekend, Days of Wine and Roses, to Leaving Las Vegas, and so many important books, such as Dry or Drinking, A Love Story. Well, today we'll discuss a memoir that I would certainly add to the list of important literary contributions on the subject. Today, I'm talking with author Jay Keefe. His book is entitled, And Drink I Did, One Man's Story of Growing Through Recovery. It's his tale of descending into the despair of alcoholism, only to somehow survive and realize sobriety. It's a triumphant return to the real world, and as you'll hear, Jay's goal is simple, to share his story and his process of recovery, hoping that he can help others overcome the stigma and shame brought about by alcoholism. You are very honest, (laughs) let's put it that way. I guess you have to be if you're going to pen something that's going to help yourself and others. Honesty's key, isn't it? It was with this book, yeah. I didn't want to hold back any punches, and I just kind of wanted to tell my story from my first drink and in, in, until my last drink, obviously. But the more important part of the book, I think, is the final third of it, where what I'm, what I did, and what I'm doing to stay recovered from alcoholism. Right, and and needless to say, a hearty congratulations on where you are today. I want to go back, and I I read the book in two sittings. Do people tell you that, that they read it in short order? Most of my friends will read it on the Boston to Orlando flight, <laughs> which is about three hours. Yeah, that's about right. And and it's not because it's, you know, it's well-written and all that, but it's not because there are just three words on a page. There's a lot of stuff here, but it's just so captivating to read about you. So let's go back to the beginning. This really surprised me. You don't come from a broken home of tragedy and abuse and all that. Uh, Tell us about home life. No, I I grew up in a typical um, suburban neighborhood, family, you know, mom and dad, um, two older sisters, a younger brother. We grew up in Braintree. I know you're from Randolph. Yeah, this is Braintree, Massachusetts, a South Shore destination from Boston, about 20 minutes outside of the city. Yep. So I grew up there, um, had everything I ever needed and or wanted as far as a childhood. Um, good school system in Braintree, ton of friends, and it was the typical, you know, South Shore, Boston suburb neighborhood. Okay, again, nothing that would suggest, oh my God, how could this guy not be abusing something or addicted to something, which makes your story not unique, actually, but makes your story different than many other books of this kind. Yeah, uh, a lot of people uh, come from broken homes, a lot of um, recovering alcoholics come from homes with rampant alcoholism. And I actually asked my mom and dad while I was researching the book or writing the book if we had any history of alcoholism in the family on either side as far back as, the, as they mm. could remember. And both of them said no. Obsessive compulsive disorder. We hear about it. Uh, I have friends who have a touch of it. And uh, Probably every human being has some obsession, but with you, it was really troubling as a youngster. Talk a little bit about that. It was. um, When I was about eight or nine, my parents got divorced, and I instantly felt alone and almost abandoned um, by my dad. Um, It has nothing to do with him as a person. It was, you know, adult stuff that as a child I didn't know how to deal with. So I became – I – Developed obsessive compulsive disorder before I even knew what it was, but I had certain rituals that I felt I needed to do 
to scratch the itch, so to speak. Such as? I would clean my entire house from top to bottom, like every single day. Um, vacuuming, dusting, and I even had rituals, a, a strange ritual where I had to tap these drawers in my kitchen every morning before mm. I left for the bus. And if I didn't tap them right, I had to do it over and over again. Mm -hmm. And my friends would be in the kitchen watching me do this, thinking mm -hmm. it was a quirk and funny and amusing. I, I couldn't leave the house <laughs> until it was done the way I wanted it to be done. Well, I knew something was off then. Called a disorder for a reason. I mean, it's not the normal chain of events, and it's it becomes so much a part of who you are, and you can't really break that habit, right? It's yes, it was. You could quell it, I guess, for lack of a better word, temporarily by doing whatever the Right. Obsessive behavior was, right. but it was kind of like a, um, um, an itch that you couldn't scratch. Right. The itch, however, was made bearable by drink. What was the first, you talk about it, the first drink experience like? It was, I was a freshman in high school and a friend of mine was older than us. Um, he was about 18 or 19 and he could buy beer. So he bought a case for me and three of our friends, three of my friends. And it was pretty supervised, as if you can supervise teen drinking. And we sat in his house on a Friday night at his kitchen table. His parents were away. And so between the four of us, we had six beers each. And I started drinking. And I, I liked the taste of beer anyway. I, I always had, even since, since, since I was a little kid. I used to take sips of my dad's beer up at our summer home. And I, I liked the fizz. I liked the taste. I liked how mm -hmm. cold it was. Mm -hmm. And by the second or third beer, I was, you know, pretty well buzzed and I instantly felt relaxed. I felt outside of myself almost. I felt comfortable in my own skin for the first time. I felt charming, funny. I wasn't nervous. I didn't have any anxiety. Mm. And OCD was the furthest thing from my mind. Well, that's what alcohol does to anybody. It, it sort of takes the edge off, quote unquote. It's when it gets out of control, which we'll talk about. What's really remarkable throughout the book and drink I did is the fact that you drank a ton and it would bowl over most guys twice your size. You're able to handle a lot, which is not good when you're an alcoholic, right? Correct. Yeah. Obviously, alcoholism is a progressive disease and I almost I was talking about this the other day at a twelve step meeting. I almost wore that that drinkability a, as a badge of honor. You know, I was an average student. I was an average athlete. I was one of the middle children, but I could drink and I could drink. I don't know if you want to call it well, but I could drink a lot. Mm -hmm. And and I I wore that. You know, people knew around my high school that I could drink a lot and that I was fun and outgoing and, and kind of crazy when I drank. So I I took that to the next level. It seems to me in reading the book, though, that even when you were drinking a lot, people wouldn't say, oh, this guy's a fall down drunk. This guy might be happier or funnier, but he's not obviously out of control. That was unfortunate for me as an alcoholic to the point where no one even knew. I mm. didn't, for whatever reason, I can't explain it. I didn't slur my words. I didn't look physically drunk. I wouldn't get angry. I wouldn't get belligerent. I wouldn't get super sappy. I, you know, I, I would just, I would, like I said earlier, I was a little bit more relaxed. My smile was a little broader and I was just more pleasant to be around. Mm. So I kept, and as alcohol, my alcoholism progressed, I needed more alcohol to achieve that mm. state of euphoria. So I just kept drinking and drinking and, and, you know, towards the end, it, it got pretty ugly. 
We'll talk now about relationships for a second. You obviously had a job, we should mention that, and paid well. And you also had relationships with women and in some cases, women and children. It's a foregone conclusion that things are not going to go well when you're an alcoholic, isn't it? Correct. Yes. I actually ended up meeting a woman. I was hired by Verizon in 1996, so 23 years old. I met my then wife when I was 27. And at that point, I was a full-blown alcoholic. I was maintaining it. You know, we say functional alcoholic quotes. But another friend of mine, I wasn't a functioning alcoholic. I was a drunk with a job. Mm. And I showed up every day. That's mm-hmm. all I had to do with, with my job, fortunately, at the time, is all I had to do was show up. And I met a woman, and we fell in love. We ended up getting married. She had three babies um, from a previous marriage, so... I was kind of thrust right into a instant family. I couldn't even take care of myself, never mind a wife of three That's kids. That's pressure enough if you're not an alcoholic or you're not in trouble. I mean, the idea of inheriting, uh, adopting immediately three little ones, really little ones, would throw anybody for a loop, any gentleman for a loop, and cause stress levels to go through the roof. But then again, you're also trying to quell that stress on a regular basis. Yes. I was pretty well behaved when it came to, you know, drinking around the kids. Um, But we split custody with her ex-husband. So I had a lot of downtime where I was either with just her or by myself. And I I took full advantage of that. Mm -hmm. We're going to get to where you are today and what you learned and how the importance of falling down and getting back up again makes it all better today. But there are a couple of stories that you recall telling. One about the drive with the older kids in the car. That's pretty scary. And there are a couple of times, and I'll have you talk about this, where you say, I pretty much reach bottom, but not quite enough because you go back and do it again. My family has a summer home up on Lake Winnipesaukee, and Weirs Beach is a honky-tonk little town with arcades and whatnot. And I was up there with my family. It was my sister's three kids who were little at the time, my ex-wife's son. I actually had my two golden retrievers with me and... My brother, so we all went to this Weir's Beach Arcade ski ball place, and we gave each kid $20, told them to go play, and my brother and I went to the bar, and I would run in, do a shot while he was outside holding the dogs, and then we'd switch. We kept doing that for about an hour. The kids came back. We gave them another $20 each. My brother and I continued to drink, switching places with the dogs. And I lost count at 10 shots of tequila, and I drove home that night. Right. And the scary thing is I woke up the next day, and I jokingly said to my brother, you drove home last night, right? He said, no, you did. And I have absolutely no recollection. That sense of blacking out and not remembering is so scary, particularly with the kids in the car. That jolted me as a reader, and I'm sure that's the point you want to make, that these things can get pretty bad. Okay, before we get to the recovery that really took, the spiritual encounter in the church. Now, a lot of people listening believe in some sort of spiritual connection. I do, you do. But yours was pretty interesting, almost a, almost a little dramatic it taking place in a church. Share that briefly with it, us. It was very dramatic. I... I and this is no offense to any listener. I know this could be a delicate situation in Boston. I was raised Catholic, and I had an issue with it from the beginning. I think it was more about having a, um, a chip on my shoulder and not liking being told what to do than it was the actual religion. 
So I was actually an atheist um, by the time I was 15 years old. And I knew after I got sober that I, I needed to believe in something greater than myself. And I also knew with every ounce of my being that religion wasn't going to cut it, at least Catholicism for me. So after I was about two years sober, I was dating a girl and she had a little three-year-old daughter and we were at a 12-step meeting in the basement and the, the little girl got restless so I, I told the mom that I would take her for a walk. So we left the meeting, we walked up the stairs of the church and the, the church proper was unlocked, which is, I think that's pretty rare when there isn't a, a mass going on. So we walked in and it was on Brookline and Beacon Street. It's whatever, 100, 200 year old church, beautiful. And the little girl grabbed my hand and pulled me further into the church and she said, this is beautiful. I thought that was such a strong word for a three-year-old to, to use that, and it was, it was a beautiful church. And I looked up at the stained glass window and immediately a sense came over me, kind of telling me that everything was gonna be all right. And, it, you know, I have, I'm a writer, I'm, I have a vivid imagination, I'm an alcoholic. My imagination and the alcoholic part of my brain was immediately telling me, you watch too many movies, this is BS, mm. you don't really feel something. The feeling didn't get stronger, it didn't get less, but it wouldn't go away. And the, the little girl and I just sat there and looked around and it was just an overwhelming sense of calm. Something, whatever it is, I, I stopped trying to analyze it years ago, was telling me that I was okay, I was in the right place, I'm going to be okay if I continue to do the right thing, but it's up to me to do the right thing. Mm. And then it, it vanished. Here's the weird part. I, I'm getting goosebumps telling the story. We went back to the meeting. The meeting ended. I wasn't going to share what had happened with the girl's mom, but I, I just I wanted her to see the inside of the church because it was beautiful, and it was the first time we had been there. So I grabbed the girl's mother. We walked back up the steps. We tried to get back in the church, and the church was locked. Now, maybe mm. a nun or a priest saw us leave and realized they forgot to lock it. Doors open sometimes for a reason at, at a particular time in your life when they need to open. <laughs> and that's how I look at it. Hey, I would look at it the same way. I, I think everyone has a different version of their, quote, dark night of the soul. I know I have. You certainly had quite a, an example of that. But you had tell the story about going to Vermont. And there's a reason we bring Vermont into this. Very important because that's the home or an, an area where he lived and worked for the famous anonymous Bill W. Bill Wilson, is it? Yes. Okay. How did that come about for you? And why was that so super important in your life? Again, I don't believe in coincidences. And at the time I was, I had a friend in the 12 step program I belonged to, and he was just going on a, a men's retreat up to the Wilson house in Vermont, which Bill Wilson used to live there. And it's now been converted and um, marked a historic landmark and it's just, it's, a, it's an inn where every weekend they have retreats, um, substance abuse, or recovery-based yeah. retreats. Yeah. So he went up there. I went, he asked me to go with him. I went. I was only about three months sober. I remember I had a baseball hat on the whole weekend, and I wasn't looking at anyone. I wasn't talking to anyone. I was so nervous to be around people sober. But anyway, as I was walking around the inn, I saw signs for volunteers needed. 
And I promised myself when I got sober that I would volunteer twice a year somewhere. So we left the retreat. I went home, went online, submitted my applica- application for the two-week um, volunteer program. They accepted. I went. And then the day I <clears> – excuse me. The day I went for the two-week volunteer program, there were signs all over the inn saying we need three-month full-time volunteers. And I took that as mm. a sign, pun definitely intended. Mm-hmm. And it was right around Thanksgiving. I went home, spent Thanksgiving with my family, and told them that I was moving to Vermont for three months. So I left on December 1st. That was a life changer as well because you were giving back and seeing others much like you and trying to get help. Yeah. It was it was absolutely, I think, paramount to my recovery. I was basically the innkeeper. It was off season and there wasn't a lot of snow that year in Vermont. So during the week it was pretty quiet, but it would just be me in the inn, mm. me and the house golden retriever. And I would be responsible when if if and when guests came to make sure they got settled, check them in, make them breakfast in the morning. Weekends were very busy because of the seminars every weekend. And I was fortunate enough that once I did my chores, the woman who owns the Wilson house said, go take part in all the seminars. So uh, I did, no matter what they were, sure. overeaters, gamblers, anonymous, Al-Anon, whatever it was, I, I took part in because you know I'm always open to learning new new ways of recovery. Now I've got the goosebumps when you talk about that uh, connection there. Wow, I mean that's like going to that's like going to Jerusalem and you know in a sense being by the Western Wall or Jesus's tomb. I mean it's really not to be overly dramatic, but in your life this is the the apex of those who tried to help people. Before we get to where you are today, a big part of what you write about has to do with the physical nature of your life and the fact that you've always been, and you came in today and you're in excellent shape, but you always have focused on physicality, exercise, fitness, which is kind of weird because here you are, an alcohol, raging. I mean, you're, you're sneaking off, you're putting things in pockets, you're doing all this stuff, drinking hard liquor, and you're still working out and managing to keep your gifted body in relatively good shape. How do you explain that? That, I can't even explain it myself. Even though I was drinking like a fish, I I, I would somehow manage to drink plenty of water. I, I watched what I ate. And every day I'd wake up hungover. Um, I would make sure I made it to the gym almost to sweat the hangover out. First and foremost, now I, I exercise because it's almost like an act of meditation. Yeah. I don't think about anything when I'm exercising. And it's it's very much like a 12-step meeting is I've never worked out and felt worse afterwards. Mm-hmm. I've never left a 12-step meeting and felt worse afterwards. I always feel better. So when I'm begrudgingly, I'll go to the gym hungover. What am I doing? I can, My head's pounding. I'm shaking. And again, I think that almost ties into the OCD mm-hmm. a little bit. Mm-hmm. Like I'm going to do this and I'm going to try to do it as well as I can. I'd like to get your take on something that's still a little controversial. When people suggest alcoholism is not a disease, it's a lifestyle choice. I'm looking at you. I've read your book. I know you a bit from setting these interviews up and meeting you. You come across as you are, a man of character, of strength, hard work, determination, uh, loyalty, etc. And I'm, I'm, I'm not just saying that to butter you up. I'm saying that because that's who I think you are. I, I can read people pretty well. And yet, you led this life that ruined your, almost ruined your life totally and ruined the lives of others around you. Disease or lifestyle? Oof, good question. <laughs> Maybe I don't know where you're going to come down. 
I I still have an issue, probably just because of the way I was raised with the actual word disease. M- most people hear disease, they think cancer, you know, mm. leukemia, heart disease. It, it's definitely an illness. I, I definitely do not think it's a lifestyle choice. Absolutely, positively. For a little background on me personally, when I pick up that first drink, I have absolutely positively no control over not picking up the second one. Mm. And there's a saying that goes around, you know, it's it's the first drink that gets you drunk. Disease, I'm not a medical professional. Well, I think disease and illness, that's a that's a clarification. I, I think that's a, an excellent, it's a chronic illness. Absolutely. I think that's better defined. You just helped me out a little bit. The point I wanted to make was for the vast majority of abusers, uh, those addicted to whatever, I believe these are people of generally good character who have something wrong. This is where the switch is turned on, just as it is with other mental illness conditions. I mean, if people are depressed or people have anxiety, that's not a character flaw. That's just what they have to work through and and handle. So that was my point. And um, let's talk about what you do to help others now. You're constantly going to meetings, I know, but you're also speaking out. And this book is a great way to do that. What's your approach when you're working with others? I always try to extend my hand in meetings on on social media, which some consider controversial because it is an anonymous program. I don't mention what program it is. I just, I all I can do is share my story. I, I try not to be preachy. I think I'm pretty successful at it, but I can share and or suggest to people what I do for my recovery. It, it's not necessarily going to work for the next person, but I know what I've done meetings, step work, having a spiritual connection to something greater than myself is the by far the most important. Right. You know, there's something very interesting that you wrote about, and I've had friends who have had uh, connections with Alcoholics Anonymous for years, and they talk about, you know, that person that is their go-to person. What What's the term? Uh, sponsor. Sponsor. And you were very honest Thank you, because you said, you know, not all, just because you're a sponsor doesn't mean you're an upstanding American who's really looking out. It's like anything else in life. There are good cops, bad cops, good teachers, good, and there are good sponsors, great sponsors whom you met, but then there are also people who are eh, not really fulfilling their mission. I've never heard anyone talk about that, so honestly. <laughs> yeah, and again, that may come back to the smaller, hopefully, chip on my shoulder that I now have. I There's... I, I tell newcomers this, and without trying to sound jaded or cynical, you walk into a room of 100 alcoholics, and there's probably only 10 or 12 that are on point, which is fine. Mm. Those rooms are designed for anybody who thinks they have an issue or does have an issue to feel safe. So those rooms are designed for that. But it's up to the people in those rooms to do the work mm. that is suggested of us. Not all of them do. I didn't. And I'll be completely honest about that. I didn't for the first 18 months. Right. All it, I did was go to meetings and it showed. Right, right. It's it's not a walk in the park to be an alcoholic or addicted to anything. It's certainly not a walk in the park to break that addiction. It's hard freaking work, isn't it? It is. It's as as an illness, as I take it, it's it's a physical, mental, and spiritual illness, meaning mm-hmm. all three. So you have to I had to work on all three to get to where I am now. And some people work on one, maybe two. We'll kind of take it buffet style, we call it. Is it a little bit of that OCD that's helping you now, maybe? That's giving you the 
the desire to touch all those touch points. I, I know it's weird to think that, but I mean, in a way, what drove you to this might actually be helping you. Is that possible? It is to a degree. People ask me all the time, like the actual disorder of OCD for me is completely gone. Oh, meaning the obsessive. I don't obsess about anything anymore. Um, my dad's a super neat and organized guy. That's the way I was raised. So I'm neat and organized and, and disciplined and driven by nature. The OCD took it to another level. another level. The alcoholism quelled it and the sobriety keeps it quelled. Congratulations, man, because that's it's it's one thing to stop drinking. It's another thing to find balance. And that's what you're doing every day. And that's what all of us are trying to do in our own ways. I want to mention your other book briefly, Wicked, I'll Say Effed. <clears throat> and that's okay, because that's the way we talk around here. Sorry, Mom. Here. Tales of a Boston Uber Driver. That's obvious. That's another terrific memoir, if it is. You seem to have this memoir thing down pretty well. Do you have desire to write other types of material, novels or... I do. And I, I actually, I didn't just wake up one day and decide to write a book. I've been writing my entire life. I've, I've been pretty good at it my entire life, straight A's in English. I actually went to school for creative writing, mm -hmm. but a little thing known as alcoholism got in the way, so I never finished. I'm not privy to what a real alcoholic goes through, but I feel you've ed aided me and others like me in knowing what it's like and, uh, and not sort of putting a general umbrella over all alcoholics. If that's a victory, then you should celebrate that. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, how can people reach you if they want to have you speak? Or I am on Facebook quite often. Ask any one of my friends. Just my name, Jay Keefe, K-E-E-F as in Frank E. Okay. And the book is available online everywhere, Amazon, Amazon and yep. Barnes & Noble. Yep. And Drink I Did, One Man's Story of Growing Through Recovery. Well, I'm glad we had a chance to meet and share your story a bit. I know people will want to read the book now. And... Uh, all I can say is thanks and congratulations. Thank you so much, Jordan. This is Jordan thanking you for listening to On Mike with Jordan Rich, available on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and, of course, Android. Appreciate you subscribing, downloading, rating, and reviewing this podcast if you get a chance. On Mike is produced at Chark Productions in Boston. Until next time, be well so you can do good. <laughs>